Whenever I preach, I'm always uh, looking for the confirmation of the Holy Spirit about what I'm going to preach about. Um, and sometimes uh, when, when I encounter a certain resistance to the message, I want to know if the resistance is from the enemy, if the resistance is from the flesh, if the resistance is from the Holy Spirit and I'm off track on what I want to preach. So I want to say right up front that part of what I've experienced over this last week as I've been preparing this word is there's been some resistance in my flesh because of areas that I've walked in in my past that God has set me free from. And, uh, and I trust that today people are going to move into a new measure of freedom themselves. So this is for all of us. And before I start, I'll give you a little bit of context here. Jesus is eating the Last Supper with his disciples and it's almost time for them to leave. And Jesus knows that soon they will be scattered and he knows that they're going to forsake him. And he wants to reassure them, and this is John chapter 14, he starts off with a glorious promise of heaven, but as it turns out, his disciples don't really understand the realm that he's speaking of. Have you ever been so earthly-minded that you don't even think about what eternity might hold for you? You get so caught up in the affairs of this world that you kind of lose the greater perspective, the higher perspective. And uh, so John 14, beginning at verse 1, I'm going to work through these uh, verses with a particular theme in mind because in John chapter 14, Jesus has a particular theme in mind that he wants imparted. And so knowing that these disciples are troubled because they've had the Last Supper and they, they've, they've heard him say a number of times, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be raised from the dead in three days. They don't really understand what he's talking about. Um, in verse 1 he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What an incredible promise. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. These disciples that are sitting with him at the table have been with him for three years. They know that he has plainly stated that he is the Son of God. But when he says this, Thomas kind of puts his hands up because he cannot comprehend that Jesus is speaking of heaven, nor does he have that revelation yet about what Jesus is saying is the way to heaven. So in verse 5, it says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how can we know the way? Now, we just read where he's going. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, verse 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. You know, we live 
in a church culture today that's quite happy to quote the, quote the first half of verse 6 and leave out the rest in case it might offend somebody from another faith. This is one of the greatest scriptures of Jesus' messianic purpose in all of scripture. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One of the greatest statements in the Word of God, Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus is the only way into eternity. Every other pathway to God is false and full of deception. And I could ask for a show of hands of people that have walked in other faiths and seen that that falsehood and deception. In fact, give me a wave of your hands if you walked in another way other than Jesus and you saw that it was false and full of deception. Hallelujah. And his intention here was that his disciples' lives would be lived with eternity constantly in view. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I might not be here physically with you, but I'm going to release something to you that will stand you in good stead for all of your remaining years here on this planet and then you're going into eternity with me, but only with and through me. Because of this sure promise, we can live our lives for him no matter what happens during our earthly lifespan. Let me just fix this shoe. I don't want to be tripping over while I'm preaching. Lest the Holy Spirit knocks me over, which you can do any time, Lord. He goes on to say in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. What does that imply? He's saying to his disciples, I don't think you quite know me. I don't think you quite have the revelation of who I am. But from now on, you know him and you have seen him also. You've seen the Father. And Philip, so Thomas has already waved his hand and asked his question. Now Philip sticks his hand up. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. But Jesus was just saying to them, because you know me, you know him. This is the problem with a essentially materialistic mindset, one that concentrates on the here and now. Because the disciples want to live their lives by visible proof, not by faith. Is that right? Show us the Father. Show us. Is, not, is God not spirit? How are you going to show a spirit? You can show the manifestation of the spirit, but the spiritual realm is the spiritual realm. The disciples want to live their lives by visible proof, not by faith. And they're kind of saying, well, if you can visibly show us God, the Father, then we're going to believe. But that's not faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Jesus has been showing them the Father by his character and by what he does. And now, so Jesus has got all of this, uh, he's, he's having the disciples unveil the poverty of their hearts toward him. 
in this conversation. And he begins to move the conversation toward a specific purpose. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Three years he's been telling him this, right? And then I want you to uh, hold this next statement in your heart because this is where we're going with this message. It's going to take us somewhere. He says to him next, The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. How do you connect those two statements? Jesus speaks and the works are done. But Jesus does not speak, does not do anything on his own authority. It is the Father that he is submitted to that gives him the authority, gives him the words, and the fruit of what he speaks out is manifested in the natural realm and the spiritual. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. In other words, believe me because you're talking to me, you've been walking with me, you've seen all the things I've done. Believe me, but if you can't quite get your head around that, just think about all the people that have been healed, that have been saved, that have been raised from the dead even in your presence. As you stood around and Lazarus came out, they rolled the stone away and he came out and the grave clothes were unwrapped. Believe that I am who I say I am because of what you have observed me do. There's another scripture that says, uh, more blessed are we who were not there at that time, that who have received him by faith. Is that right? And so what Jesus is opening up here is the whole realm of submitted authority. Submitted authority. Jesus has said things to them previously about this topic. Like, for instance, in John 5, 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself But what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Jesus didn't do what he wanted to do. Jesus did what his Father told him to do. And he extends this concept to us. He does it in a number of ways, but for instance, John 15, 5, where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. But without me, you can do nothing. Without him, you can do nothing. You might think you're talented. You might think you're gifted. You might think you're anointed. All of this is through the grace of God. 
And God wants you to submit to the authority that you've been placed under so that you can be more fruitful than you could ever imagine. You know, there's this... Uh, there's a, uh, I, was, I, was, I quoted this to somebody the other night that um, at the height of Chairman Mao's persecution of the church in China, there was a bunch of, uh, of underground house church leaders as restrictions began to ease in China and they were, about to, they were allowed to leave the country. Some of them went to the United States of America and they got shown around all these magnificent churches with their thousands of people in the congregation and all the rest of it. And when they were asked what they thought about what had happened, they said, isn't it amazing what the Western church has been able to do without God? Isn't it amazing what the Western church has been able to do without God? I remember going to see the heavenly man, Brother Yoon, speak and almost the first words out of his mouth were, the Western church does not need any more buildings. See, we can do a lot without God. But what he's saying here is it's not God. God's idea is that he directs his church. And when he directs it, it's fruitful. And we are in a season in the church now where only the things that have God's imprimatur, his blessing upon, they're the things that are going to prosper. The son can do nothing of himself. It's what Jesus said about his relationship with his heavenly father. But he was so tuned to his heavenly father that the blind would see, the deaf would hear, the dead would be raised, demons would be cast out. For instance, Matthew 8, 16, there's an incident there where it says, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. How does this tie in? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but my Father does the works. Jesus would release the word that the Father gave him and things would change. The Son can do nothing of himself. Jesus' relationship with his Father was one of submission, obedience, discipline and humility, all, of course, within the context of love for a lost and broken humanity. Submission, obedience, discipline and humility. These are big words, big in the spirit, because that's sonship. That's actually sonship. We are to follow the example 
of the Son of God because the Bible says he is the firstborn of many brethren. Then Jesus gets a bit more outrageous. We're still in. We're going back to John 14. We get to verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Have you ever meditated on those words? Have you ever... People heard people preach around it. Heard people say, oh, well, you know, that's because Jesus couldn't be in all those different places at once and so he needed the church across the face of the earth. I like to take Jesus at his word. Amen. Because when Jesus says... Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. What were Jesus' works? Did he build big churches? No. He, did not. he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he cleansed lepers, and he cast out demons. The works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And verse 14, if there is a more outrageous verse in the Bible, I don't know what it is. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus is raising two huge issues here. He is challenging us in these verses on two fronts. They are questions of authority and identity. Let me ask you a question. Who here among us has asked something or commanded something in Jesus' name and it didn't happen? Maybe I didn't, maybe you didn't understand the question. Who here has asked something or commanded something in the name of Jesus and it did not happen? Every hand should be raised unless you're not actually a follower of Jesus, and then I can totally understand where you're at. But I don't know, I have never met a Christian who did not ask something in Jesus' name and have it like fall to the ground and nothing happened. I've done it many times. So how do we deal with this? Because this is an unequivocal promise given to us here. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. But what I've learned, continue to learn and will learn, is that the name of Jesus is not some sort of supernatural incantation that produces healing, miracles, provision or whatever the need might be. It's not a magic formula. It most definitely is not a matter of name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. Who amongst us here have blabbed it and grabbed it? 
Let me qualify what I'm saying by saying that I'm not against the word of faith movement. I'm not against it. I just think people take it to stupid extremes. If I have a sore ankle, I have a sore ankle. It's not like I'm not allowed to confess that because that's not what Jesus has done for me. <laughs> so I want to break these two concepts down a little bit, particularly the one of authority, because I don't believe that the modern Western Christian church really grasps what it's about. And in fact, um, as I was looking into this, God took me to this story in Luke chapter 7 and through this showed me that even an unsaved Roman centurion had a better grasp on the concept than most of us do. What do I mean by that? It's a bit sad, isn't it? All our years in church, all our years. Luke 7 verse 1. And when he had concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Let me make one thing clear. Jesus didn't go to the Roman centurion because he was worthy because he was more deserving than the leper outside the city gates, because he'd given the church money. He went because he knew there was a demonstration of kingdom principle that was about to be released to us that we need to get hold of. So verse 6, Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. Say the word, and my servant will be healed. That's not even where I'm going, but that's good. (laughs) Say, Say the word, and my servant will be healed. Now listen to this. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, these things that the centurion has just said, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well, who had been sick. Now, if you're like me, you may not have grasped fully why Jesus was so amazed by the centurion's attitude and faith. 
You know, we, we focus on say the word and my servant will be healed or, you know, I understand what authority is about, but let me, let me, let me show you something. What we tend to focus on is that Jesus would only have to speak a word. Whatever was wrong with the centurion servant would be totally and instantly dealt with. And that's true. No need for Jesus to come to the house. No need for him to lay hands on the servant. With a word, he would be healed. And that's entirely true. That's exactly what happened, right? But I want you to see something else, how the centurion ties the healing power of Jesus to authority. It's not just that he sees that Jesus has this authority to heal. There is a depth of revelation here that we need to get hold of because the centurion didn't say, oh, well, you know, I'm also a man with great authority. He said, I also am a man placed under authority. If I go to the Greek, placed means appointed or ordained. Under means under, <laughs> beneath. I looked it up in the Greek, under. can't remember the actual Greek word, but it, well, I looked at the Strong's. Under, beneath. Pretty straightforward. Is that right, Bill? <laughs> or Anna? Anna's my... Uh, my, my New Testament Greek linguist. <laughs> Beneath, an authority is the power or rule of government. The centurion is saying, I know what it's like to have been commissioned underneath a governing authority. The centurion understood that Jesus carried the authority of heaven because he was submitted to that authority. A centurion could say to a soldier or a servant, of any of those under him, go here, do this, do that, and it would be done. It would be done because the centurion carried the authority of Rome. And he only carried the authority of Rome to the degree that he submitted to it. Because what do you think would happen to him if the centurion questioned the authority of those over him? He would be executed in a matter of days. This centurion could only be appointed or ordained into that place of authority after he was trained up in how to respond to authority and he recognised in Jesus something very similar. Am I getting on scary ground for you? Hebrews 5, 8, though he was a son, this is talking about Jesus, right? The son of God. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Has that verse ever troubled you? Has that ever raised questions in your heart? It's raised questions in mine. See, it's a cop-out to merely say, oh, you know, Jesus was God so he could do anything he wanted. 
All through this message so far this morning, you can see that's actually exactly the opposite to what Jesus operated in. He could only do what he saw the Father doing. If he did anything that the Father did not tell him to do, would he not be in sin? Right? If he was in sin, could he be your saviour? No. When Jesus was born, he was born as a man and was subject to all the temptations that we are, yet without sin. The older I get, the more amazed I am by that statement. (laughs) Who could walk through? I mean, just ask the parents. Who here, who's a parent, had had to teach your child how to be naughty? Just give me a quick wave of your hand. Come on, I'll wait. Could be here a while. We're born under a sin nature. And yet Jesus, because of that hovering of the Holy Spirit over Mary, this is why the virgin birth is so integral to the Christian faith that if he was descended just from Adam, he carried a tainted bloodline. But because the Holy Spirit hovered over Mary and released a new bloodline upon upon the face of the earth, Jesus could walk in what he walked in. Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. What were the things that he suffered? Temptation. What happened when the Holy Spirit came upon him when he was baptized at the Jordan River? The Holy Spirit impelled him into the wilderness. He was offered all the kingdoms, all the worship. What was offered everything that Satan could possibly throw at his feet was offered to him in billions times more measure than anything we have ever suffered in the area of temptation, yet he was without sin. And when he learned these things as he went, there was a check in his spirit. Every time there was a temptation coming, he would resist. No, I have a purpose. And my purpose is to be submitted under the authority of God so that I can complete what he has called me to do. And in doing that, he modelled what we are supposed to walk out as Christians. He learned obedience to the Father's will by being tested again and again and again until even when they were driving nails through the palms of his hand and through his feet, he could say, Lord, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And in so doing, he became the perfect model of a life submitted to authority. That is sonship. If you ever wanted a quintessential example of rebellion, he's talking at you now. I am, without a shadow of a doubt, the most rebellious person I've ever met in my life. I would rebel just for the sake of being a rebel. (laughs) I would rebel just because you were telling me to do something. I'm not doing that. You're not going to tell me what to do. 
you name an authority under heaven and I rebelled against it. Parents, school, police, government, society, employers. You... <laughs> what was that? Wife. When we say... I didn't even get started on the wick on the girls here. I'm talking about sonship, right? <laughs> you want to talk about submission? Let's go, babe. <laughs> I can only say that <laughs> when I love you like Jesus loved the church, I'm doing my best, babe. <laughs> Uh, okay, let's just pull, pull these back. <laughs> Give me a shotgun, somebody. <laughs> Jesus tells us explicitly. John five nineteen, The son can do nothing of himself. Jesus couldn't do anything of himself. And in John 15, 5, he says to us, without me... You can do nothing. Let me challenge you with this. Are you ready? Ready. Are your hearts open this morning, church? Yes. Praise the Lord. If you don't know how to be under authority, you don't know how to operate in the kingdom. If you don't know how to operate under authority, you don't know how to operate in the kingdom nor will you move into the fullness of what God has for you. When I became a Christian, I thought I could be a rebel Christian. It didn't work out well for me at all because every time I rebelled, God would put me under somebody more controlling and more manipulative. Until I learned... The hard way. That rebellion doesn't work. Submission to God's appointed authority does. See, that was kind of soft. If you don't know how to be under authority, you don't know how to operate in the kingdom, nor will you move into the fullness of what God has for you. That's as soft as this is going to get. Let me go further. If you are not submitted to godly authority, you are in rebellion. So I thought, what's a way I could demonstrate this today? (laughs) Everyone's going, not me. (laughs) Rose very kindly put her hand up. (laughs) Actually, everybody... uh, Rejoice with Rose because she was appointed to a new executive position this week. And she's been waiting a long time for that door to open for her. And I've watched her walk, th- walk through uh, this season. Um, and uh, I had a word for her that, uh, you know, she starts this Wednesday. She's not so much being employed as she is being deployed. And there is a kingdom purpose behind 
the specific appointment that Rose has been released into. I won't go further than that because I don't know who might watch this later on. Um, but let me give you an example. So Rose is starting work this Wednesday. Let's say um, she turns up on Wednesday and the boss says to her, I want you to perform this task for me and here are the six instructions on how to go about it and this is how I want it done. And don't, in particular, do this part of the task in this way. All right, so you've got a set of six instructions. You've been told something else not to do. Is that clear? Now, let's say Rose goes away and says to herself, well, when I go to complete this assignment, I'm going to do steps one and four, but the rest, I've got a better idea. I'm not going to do that. Oh, and that thing he specifically didn't want done in that way, I think that's the best way. I'm going to do it that way. How long do you think she's going to last? If she lasts, she's in effect hamstrung herself because the person who employs her is not able to entrust anything greater to her because she wasn't faithful with a few simple things that she was asked to follow. Is that right? Why should the ecclesia be any different? See, that centurion who understood this idea of being submitted under authority, he understood that Jesus was completely submitted to the authority of his heavenly father and he knew that whatever Jesus said goes. And when Jesus spoke the word, the centurion's servant was healed. But the centurion had the revelation that he was operating under authority. He wasn't lording it over anybody. He wasn't trying to be bossy. He wasn't trying to be controlling. He wasn't trying to be manipulative. He was operating in authority because he was doing what his heavenly father had asked him to do and to say. That centurion was tasked with imposing the culture of Rome upon any place that he was assigned to. That centurion had a pretty good idea of apostolic intent. He carried the authority and culture of Rome wherever he went. You could put him amongst, with his cohort of soldiers, you could put him in the middle of Africa and you would go back 10 years later and find a little Rome right there. Because he knew that he operated under this authority and what's better still is that he carried that authority in such a way that people knew when they met him that there was something behind him that they better not mess with. He was trained and entrusted with that in a certain way. He learned to operate under authority and that qualified him to operate in authority. If you can't operate under authority, you can't operate in genuine authority. You have to be under so you can be in. And guess what? The person whose authority you're under 
may yet commission you into a role higher than the one that they carry. I've seen prophets ordained apostles. When Jesus called us an ecclesia, gates of hell shall not prevail against the ecclesia. He didn't choose synagogue, didn't choose church, didn't, choose, didn't uh, use the word congregation or fellowship. He used a term that denoted kingdom authority, governmental authority. He did so with intent, using a term that the Roman Empire had taken as their own and had uh, in the doing become the greatest empire that the world had ever seen up until that time. He did so with the intent that he might have a governing body that would bring heaven down. We're here to, to bring heaven down. We're not just called to, to get to heaven. God wants to get heaven into us. That he might have a governing body that would bring heaven down as they responded, as we respond to the authority that we're under. Everybody... I know in ministry needs to be accountable to somebody. Accountable to the degree, the degree of accountability that I have placed myself under voluntarily is to say to the person that I'm accountable, you can ask me any question you like at any time and expect from me that I will answer you honestly. That's accountability. I'm bringing this word today because I believe God wants to correct us. I believe he doesn't want the spirit of rebellion to have any open doors in this house. And uh, when Pastor Miles here, was this last Sunday? (laughs) It seems like... A very short time, he had a lifetime. Uh, Pastor Miles was here. I was just as the leader of this group of believers, it just broke my heart open to see so many people respond to his challenge. That even if you're going to be shipwrecked on your way to your destination. God wants you to respond to the call on your life. And we saw this flood of people come and flood the altars and say, God, that's me. The purpose of this message is to give you the benefit of my experience and mistakes, particularly those of you who responded, which is about half our church last week. Learn to operate under authority because you are going to be asked to do things that you don't want to do. Every time I was asked to do something that I didn't want to do and I didn't do it in the way I was asked, I went round the mountain one more time. 
Save yourself some painful years. If you're asked to do something, if you're asked to respond in a certain way, do it. Can I humbly suggest to you, as the pastor of the church, that it's a lot easier for you to stand before me and be accountable than it is for me to stand before him and be accountable for what I've asked you to do. And everybody makes mistakes. I've never met a perfect member of fivefold ministry, but that's what God's given us for the raising up of the ecclesia. This concept of operating under authority is at the heart of sonship because this is what Jesus modelled for us. Humility, obedience, discipline, love, all these beautiful things that Jesus modelled in perfect obedience to his heavenly Father. This is at the heart of sonship. It's time for us to stop operating out of an orphan spirit. Because an orphan spirit rejects correction, rejects authority, and always has a tendency toward rebellion. We are not called to be orphans. We are called to be sons. Our destiny is sonship. Now, my darling Kerry got a prophetic word, and I'm going to ask her to come and bring that now. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. <clears throat> you know, this is an area where. I have to check myself a lot. It'd be very easy for me to fall back into my old ways. But that's not me. That's the old guy. He's dead, right? Dead and buried. I don't want to be resurrecting that old corpse. He's a bit smelly by now. He's been in the grave a lot longer than four days. <laughs> but Lord, he stinketh. The King James has it. <laughs> when he said, bring him out and remove the grave clothes, their objection according to the King James Version, but Lord, he stinketh. It's time that we, we stop stinkething. That's not even a word. I oh, know that. It's all right. So, come on, hon. Well, I just want to confirm the thing about rebellion because last Sunday, like I was telling you, the upper room is really a room of fire, okay? And God starts showing us things about the church, about things that are happening here. And last Sunday, when we were interceding and praying in tongues, 
and God showed me a big man, strong a strong man. man, okay, in, in, in working in this house. But I didn't know what it was, but I did tell John, and we prayed about it on Wednesday in our prayer meetings. And uh, it was revealed and exposed as rebellion. Okay? So God showed us so that, exposed it so that we can deal with this strong man. And it's being dealt with now, right? Rebellion. So I got this word before John prepared his message. But um, obviously, God is onto something, right? So this is how it goes. The winds of change are coming. It will turn everything upside down, not in destruction, but for reconstruction. Those towers of self and human strength and wisdom are falling down. The towers are like the towers of Babel. I'm looking for yielded vessels, vessels that allow me to break them and restore them piece by piece. It will no longer be about themselves, about their self-ambitions. It will be about me, allowing my hands to mold and to bend them to become my vessels. Vessels that will contain my glory, which they will carry throughout the world. I'm coming back for sons of obedience, not sons of disobedience. Be awake and be watchful. And God led me to 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8. Therefore, to you who believe, He is precious. Jesus is precious. But to those who are disobedient, Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word, to Jesus, to which they were also appointed. And God said, I will relent if they are willing to turn from their ways and embrace my ways. I'll set them back up on that road to their destinies. I'll dress them up once more in my robes of righteousness. And I'll place that signet ring on their finger. Ooh. Amen. That last sentence, I will place the robe of righteousness in on them and the signet ring on their finger. Kerry got entirely separately. She gave me that word after I prepared most of my message. And then we were worshipping together last night and God gave her that last sentence and it tied in perfectly with the crux of this message, which is that none of us are destined by the Lord to walk in an orphan state. We are all called to walk as sons. The robe of righteousness and the signet ring were given to the prodigal son. If you have been offended by my message, 
then the message is for you. Because I'm preaching it to me before I preach it to you. I want to make an invitation today. If this is an area that God requires repentance from you in, I would invite you to come out and present yourself before the Lord. But there's a wider invitation that I believe that the Lord wants to make today. That is an invitation into sonship. That, me, that we might, because see, it's not just rebellion that's being dealt with here. When you preach a message like this, it, it impacts people in different ways. I believe the Lord has been placing his finger on hearts in different ways. And when he places uh, his finger on your heart to respond in a message like this, it's an invitation. It's an invitation into sonship. He already identified the thing about isolation earlier in our meeting this morning. Now God is saying, I'm inviting you out of your orphan state into sonship. This song, Where You Go, I Go, thank you for choosing it, Irene. Didn't ask you to choose this song. The reason I love this song so much is it's, it represents submission to authority. Where you go, I go. What you say, I will say. What you pray, I will pray. Kind of start praying like Jesus. When we step into uh, back into outreach as a congregation, we're going to be going where God wants us to go. We're going to be saying what God wants us to say. As the worship team begins to minister to the Lord, if you would like to respond to this message in any way, no one's going to look at you as you walk out saying, oh, that person must be walking in rebellion. That would be indicative that you're walking in judgment. We won't go there. The Lord is examining our hearts this morning. He wants us to go somewhere. You can't go somewhere without leaving where you're at. Is that right? So I just invite you, church, respond as the Holy Spirit is leading you to. Let's leave every last trace of the orphan spirit behind today. In the name of Jesus. 
Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you.